Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, episode 114, the Autoimmunity Complex Trauma and Addiction Podcast. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello, my name is Dr. Michael Smith, and welcome to Fusion Health Radio. If you've been listening in the past, yes, we're changing the focus of the show. It's, we're shifting from the Health, Lifestyle, and Mindset podcast to the Autoimmunity Complex Trauma and Addiction podcast. If you're new to the show, in my practice as a clinician, I focus on a combination of functional medicine, ancestral nutrition, and the vast wisdom and experience of traditional Chinese medicine, and I've been doing this for over 20 years. In the last 15 years, I've also started to add in things like somatic awareness, trauma release, breath work, meditation, mindfulness, and things like that. The reason I'm shifting the focus of the podcast is that this is the focus of my practice now. It's the focus of my research. It's what I'm writing about. Uh, So in the sense of creating content for things like my websites or for the podcast, it just made sense to focus on what I'm focusing on. And this isn't just about me, it's really about focusing on what you as the listener can get the most practical experience from. If you're a person with autoimmune disease, if you're a person who's experienced trauma in your life, if you're a person who's experienced addiction in your life, my hope is to help you get a sense of how they all interact with each other, how they're all very similar. If those aren't aspects of health that you're interested in anymore, then um, hopefully if you're still into the podcast, you'll get some insight about people you know, or maybe a bit of a deep dive into where things go for people who aren't doing so well. If you're a clinician, uh, I'll still be doing all kinds of deep dives and geek outs into the biochemistry and neurophysiology and nutrition and occasional segues into how traditional Chinese medicine understands things, but it just feels more natural to me and more potent to focus on what I'm the most passionate about so that when I'm speaking to you on the show, I'm not just reciting a bunch of facts that seem like a good thing to talk about. I'm talking about what really matters to the people I work with every day. So I hope you're into the shift of the show and I would love to hear your comments and questions about what we're up to and where it's going. Anthony's still working at the big radio stations, so he may or may not be coming back to the show. And if he is or isn't coming back to the show, I'm actually considering to begin interviewing specialists uh, and experts in the areas of autoimmune disease, trauma, and addiction. So the show might be shifting. Uh, The focus is definitely shifting. But what we're going to do with this and how much you're going to get from the show is hopefully going to be a lot more. So here we go. Another name for the show could be the autoimmunity, complex trauma, and addiction connection. And it's been my experience that those things are very, very interconnected. So I'm going to walk you through just basically what autoimmunity and trauma and addiction look like in a clinical sense. And then I'm going to dive into a a kind of interesting analogy that has to do with, you know, modern medical TV shows and a way in which that... Uh, environment might give us a really clear sense of how those three things, 
autoimmunity, trauma, and addiction are deeply connected and deeply similar in the sense of clinical treatment and as patients, the symptoms that we live with and want to change every day. So autoimmunity, as most of us know, is a situation where the frontline, more aggressive, inflammatory aspects of your immune system have decided that you are the bad guy and that attacking certain membranes, glands, tissues, uh, cellular receptors, and things like that make a lot of sense. Autoimmunity is very, very complicated, so I'm going to get into a, a kind of quick example. So say uh, you fall off your bicycle and you scratch your hand in a pretty big way and it's inflamed and swollen and red and, and really upset with you. And if we were to have a little microscope to fly into your body, uh, and I like the image of cartoons, and we were floating around your bloodstream around that you know injury on your wrist, you would see what are called B cells and T cells or B lymphocytes and T lymphocytes basically running around uh, kind of like the police and uh, a reporter from the newspaper trying to check out everyone in the area to see who belongs, who's the bad guy, who's hurt, whose fault it is, and all of that. So in, in a way, your immune system is nearsighted, so it really has to come up and physically, in a way, touch the, the cell membranes of every one of your cells to make sure it's healthy or it's actually a part of you. Your B cells help out a lot, but in a really unique way in the sense that they basically focus on making what are called antibodies, which are like little wanted posters that tell your police force and other parts of your immune system, you know, who's you and who's not. There are other cells that are going to be active in the same area, and some of those cells are a part of what's called your innate immune system, which is always there basically being your skin, your lungs, your mucous membranes, your baseline inflammatory status, your baseline capacity to deal with pathogens and microbes and yeasts and, and funguses and viruses and things like that. And there's also another part of your immune system that's sort of in between your innate and adaptive immunity depend on what's, depending on what's going on. And those are basically what we call phagocytes or macrophages. And those are the parts of your immune system that chomp up the, the dead bodies and the actual bacteria and things like that. So if we look at that injury on your wrist and we realize that there's, you know, T cells, cops, B cells, reporters, uh, your ambulance would be your phagocytes chomping away at the, uh, the mess to clean things up and, and signal some healing. And then there's the underlying fire truck of the inflammatory status of your body. So, you know, best case scenario, after a few days, your wrist is going to heal up and the scratch is going to go away and you may or may not have a tiny little scar left over. Worst case scenario, uh, for whatever reason, the area stays really, really inflamed. And the tissue healing process is thwarted by poor circulation uh, or some other activity in your immune system. So just for fun, let's say your normal compensation for falling off of your bicycle is to drink a lot of vodka and eat a lot of pizza. Two things that are not going to help your immune system or your circulation at all. And if both of those are either limited or exaggerated, the healing process just changes, either gets faster or slower or more complicated. At a certain point of chronic inflammation and all of the things that happen inside of, like in your wrist, what can happen is that the membranes of your cells actually just weaken and break down from fatigue of being in that chronic wound site. 
through what is called your major histocompatibility complex one or MCH1 uh, pathway, which is basically your immune system's ability to walk up to any one of your cells and pat it down or check its ID. And if your cell doesn't have the right kind of antigen, which would be kind of like identification, then your immune system sees that cell as non-self and loses self-tolerance and starts making wanted posters for that specific kind of cell. And that can take a person from falling off their bicycle and getting a, you know, a scratch and a swollen wrist to developing something potentially as complicated as arthritis. So once your immune system starts making these uh, antibodies or autoantibodies or self-antibodies for structures in your hand at this point, then what happens is your T cells sort of upregulate or your police sort of upregulate and become more aggressive and they send natural killer cells to go after your no longer self-recognized cells and they start shooting at them, which usually causes apoptosis or cell death. And then your uh, phagocytes basically chomp up the, the leftover little bits, which is gross, but here we are. <laughs> Medicine can be messy. And the situation just continues to accelerate. And what typically happens is your B cells or the parts of your immune system that are the most prolific at producing and managing the, the attack side of looking for the bad guy, start looking for bad guys that look like the stuff that they was attacking in your wrist. And that might end up being your knee or your pancreas or your brain. So autoimmunity is complicated, it's messy, it's mysterious, but it's all driven by basically uh, an unfortunately aggressive and misguided response to threat. And I just want to leave you with that. Autoimmunity is a misguided and disoriented response to a perceived threat. It can eventually destroy many tissues and cause a lot of suffering, but there's just that underlying context, mistaken response to threat, or a normal response to a mistaken threat. So complex trauma is also a very complex environment, and I think we can all appreciate that any human being or any animal that is in enough of a, an intense experience and lives through it is going to be changed in some way fundamentally by that experience. That's not mysterious at all, but when you actually look at the changes in the structure of the way certain parts of your brain work, especially the parts of your brain that are designed to deal with threat and predict danger and things like that, there's some fundamental changes in the way you read the world from that instinctual, just structural brain response. There are things that change somatically in the way that you feel in your body. If you were beaten up in a back alley, then that's going to change the way you trust and feel your body in that way. If you were in a car accident, you may or may not really enjoy being in cars after that. If it's a sexual trauma, obviously sexuality and intimacy is going to become a challenging part of your life. And I know what that's about personally, so uh, I'm not saying that with you know a sense of lightness at all. You've probably heard of the fight, flight, or freeze response, and that's a very deeply kind of back brain response to the world. It's a very deep part of your central nervous system. You know, we all know, hopefully in some way, the, the way it would have to feel for us to be in a fight or in a situation where uh, we would have to rely on our physical body to protect ourselves or, you know, run away or perhaps leap 
perhaps play dead in the, the usual image of, you know, dealing with a bear to survive something on a physical level. There's another strategy uh, around survival that has more to do with social connection, which as human beings and, you know, more or less primates, that's our second most viable approach to survival is to cooperate and, you know, share things and have things shared with us. That's managed by a similar part of your brain and nervous system uh, to the fight, fight, or flee, freeze. And this is all sort of under the umbrella of what's called your polyvagal system. Now, there's the part of your polyvagal system that can basically turn you into a ragdoll, which technically is your freeze response. And uh, just a little aside, but if you ever want to play dead because you're being, you know, sniffed by a bear, you don't want to cover your head. You don't want to become rigid. You want to become a ragdoll. Because if you were an antelope in the jungle and you get attacked by a lion, say it grabs you by the neck and shakes you really hard, if you go limp, and I mean limp like ragdoll limp, the tiger might decide you are dead. And then it might, you know, put you in a tree and go find its kids. And if you wake up uh, while it's off looking for its kids, then you can run away. And that's fundamentally... Uh, from basically across almost all species, why we have that freeze response. And that's a very, very deep, ancient, probably the most ancient part of your nervous system. When we move from an evolutionary perspective towards, you know, the present and somewhere along the way we develop this polyvagal system that also reads body language, tone of voice, and facial expressions. So depending on all of the people you've met and how those encounters have gone across the space of your entire life, that's going to tell you and your polyvagal system how close you are to people you can collaborate with and get along with and share with and how close you are to people who might actually hurt you. So if you were, say, uh, punished a lot as a child, your ability to trust people in your family is pretty limited, uh, especially people who sound like, look like, and talk like, and, and behave like, and make facial expressions like the person who used to be you. And it's interesting, you know, from a clinical point of view that it's sort of 50-50 whether or not people are going to go and find someone in their life who reminds them of that person and people who go and find people who are the opposite of that. And both of those are adaptive strategies and, and I'll get into the mechanisms of those maybe at another time. But what I want to bring to your attention about complex trauma is it mostly revolves around your polyvagal system and it fundamentally changes the way you feel about yourself in the world, how you fit into the world, how you belong and don't belong in relationship, in community, in a workplace, in a classroom. And the more you feel alienated or a bit sideways in the world, the more your polyvagal system tells your brain that the fight, flight, or freeze thing is probably a good thing to keep right in your pocket just in case. So you could have PTSD because of exploding bombs in a war zone. You could have PTSD from working in an ambulance, seeing people die in front of you, you know, every weekend or something. There's many ways in which we can trigger that uh, natural adaptation to avoid threat and danger, uh, real or just perceived. And that creates an environment where stress is mostly run by external triggers and internal reactions. So you can already kind of probably intuit or get a sense that what your immune system is doing in autoimmunity is what your attention is doing with PTSD, which is looking for the next thing that you're going to have to deal with in an instinctual and potentially dangerous and threatening way. 
even if it's just in your mind. When you look at the statistics on addiction, when you interview a lot of people who've lived with and lived through and and, uh, healed themselves in their lives from chronic addiction, almost every single person that you speak to will talk to you about inner turmoil and pain and dissociation and derealization from previous, especially early childhood trauma. That's not my opinion. That's just in the literature. You talk to any of the experts in the world on addiction and all of them will just talk about trauma. Unless you're talking to people, say like AA, who are focused more on a, uh, on a community orientated, perhaps even religiously orientated focus on how to be with the traumatic experience of just being an addicted person. And there's a lot of value to that. But if you take a step back and ask yourself, well, if everyone who's using addictive substances has trauma, what's the connection? And the connection is what we call instinctual, visceral, and somatic, and even perhaps existential pain. If you've been traumatized by life, especially in early childhood, and you don't really know how to fit into your family or the world, you're going to lose a sense of trust for the people around you. And as collaborative primate humans, that's a big wound. Because now your opportunities to really mature and develop that polyvagal system and feel what it's like to be alive and free and autonomous in your own body and how you communicate with other people starts to change and becomes more isolating. A lot of people who have trauma tend to dissociate when they're triggered and that makes them, you know, again, feel like they're at a profound distance from people, which can trigger that internal existential and visceral kind of pain. So let's just say for the conversation, all addiction is an attempt to treat the symptom of pain. Almost all trauma changes the way your nervous system works in such a way that it keeps your attention looking for the next possible danger. And some people will go and sit next to the danger just to get that part of the experience over with. Other people will just spend their lives trying to avoid danger at all costs, which often brings us back to addiction. In autoimmunity, your immune system has lost self-tolerance. You could call it self-trust, self-love the ability to really connect in with its inner community, its inner, you could call it your inner polyvagal awareness of yourself on a contextual or or metaphoric level, uh, has changed. And now your immune system is going after every perceived threat, which is everything within you that is presently hurt. So that's a lot to wrap your mind around, I guess, if you've never really spent much time thinking about these things. So what I'd like to do is walk you through a slightly different way of thinking of this and it's a bit more playful and it brings a bit more of a clinical sense of confirmation but also a clinical sense of being practical. So I hope you appreciate my attempt at a bit of humor and uh, modern social context because uh, I'm doing it this this way because I really want you to remember the context and the personal experience of this more than just a bunch of data. So if you're into health, you've probably seen a TV show about doctors. Now, there's a lot of them. Some of them are in the emergency ward. Some of them happen in plastic uh, surgery offices. Some of them probably happen in uh, modern, you know, 
sort of more integrated medicine clinics. I don't really watch TV, so I'm not sure of what's out there. But here's the fun opportunity. Let's pretend for a few minutes that you and I are going to sit down. We are going to create and produce a TV show. And in this TV show, we have access to a hell of a lot of money, so we can spend it any way we want. And what we're going to try and do in our show is create an integrative medicine clinic that, again, has lots of funding and wants to take care of everybody and prove through uh, time, effort, and hopefully good thinking that more modern approaches to care might be more effective. So in our TV show, uh, our patients come in and on day one, they see the lab coat wearing doctor, you know, whoever that character is in our show, they should probably be a certain age and a certain sex and probably have glasses and, you know, maybe some personal issue that makes them interesting. But they're our go-to science doctor. And on day two, our patients are going to go and see maybe a somatic therapist or an acupuncturist or a massage therapist or something that's going to ask them to really connect in with the present felt sense experience of their body. And on day three, they're going to go to group therapy. And they're going to meet uh, some frumpy old psychologist or, you know, cool old hippie person, which would be awesome, that is going to guide our patients into a more direct experience of their life and their past, how they feel about themselves and what it's like to be inside of their minds and a few other things. So that's how our show is going to go. Day one, day two, day three, scientist, body work, and sort of mental self-awareness and connection. So, uh, I don't know, I want to say action or something, but if it's our, our sort of opening part of the episode uh, and our patients are going to come in, as you could probably guess, we're going to have a complex autoimmune patient we're going to have a complex trauma patient, and we're going to have a person suffering from addiction. So patient A comes into the office to meet the lab coat wearing, you know, a science-based uh, doctor. So patient A, our autoimmune patient, goes into the office to talk to our scientific lab coat wearing doctor. And they go through the lab tests. And again, we have tons of money to spend on people. So we've done lab tests on everything. And I could do another episode actually on just what all these lab tests would look like. But imagine that there's inflammatory markers, there's digestive imbalances, there's circulatory problems. Um, there's probably detox clearance issues, there's neurotransmitter imbalances, and their stress hormones because of the inflammation are all over the map. So they get a therapeutic anti-inflammatory diet, they get some supplements, they may be uh, recommended to take certain medications in the short term, and they are referred to some acupuncture for the next day to deal with whatever pain the inflammation is causing. And then patient B comes in and they're the person with complex PTSD and they sit down with the lab coat wearing science doctor and they look at all their blood tests and you guessed it, there's going to be chronic inflammation, hormonal imbalances, definite uh, neurotransmitter imbalances, um, potentially some detox issues, potentially uh, other nutritional imbalances and deficiencies. The likelihood of them having uh, digestive problems is pretty high because everyone holds butterflies in their stomach. And I would bet 
50-50 that they would have what we would call leaky gut just from holding on to that visceral sense of anxiety all of the time. So they're given some anti-inflammatory supplements, a really healthy nutrient-dense diet, uh, a few other things to help them calm down, maybe sleep better, and they're directed for, let's say, some acupuncture to help them relieve the somatic distress of walking around feeling that anxious all the time. And then patient C walks into the lab coat doctor's office, and they're, of course, hoping to get some painkillers or something because they're a person who's right now addicted to, you know, numbing their pain. And as you can guess, their inflammatory markers are really high. Their detox issues are completely, you know, troubling, you know, in, in the short term and the long term. Their stress hormones are completely out of balance. Their neurotransmitters are way all over the place out of balance. The likelihood of malnutrition is probably three times as high for people who are addicted to something than people who are not. So they're, of course, given some anti-inflammatory supplements, some things to help them calm down in other ways, things to help them uh, perhaps relax their muscles and nerves a little bit, uh, again, a nutrient-dense diet, and of course, you know, uh, the recommendation that they consider something like acupuncture for addiction. So, you know, uh, I guess I should say cut, you know, <laughs> scene number one, uh, patients, uh, one, two, and three, or A, B, and C are, uh, now going home with their bag of, you know, good supplements and recommendations for a good diet. So now it's day two in our really cool TV show clinic, and now they're all going to see our quirky acupuncturist who for some reason is convinced that everyone's walking around holding on to a whole lot of unnecessary memories and distress, which they sometimes refer to as energy blockages. So let's say patient A uh, has some acupuncture and they get up off the table and they suddenly can bend their back and their knees a bit better. They felt like they got a kind of interesting bit of rest. They reflected on their lives a little bit. Uh, they were surprised when the acupuncturist opened the door that they weren't really sure where they were, but they were astounded to learn that their nervous system uh, really is holding on to that physical inflammation and pain as a feeling of attack. Because during the treatment, as they were in the middle of relaxing, their whole body jerked like they were having a spasm. Uh, and then they kind of went back in, into the nap space and uh, came back out of it when the acupuncturist opened the door. The acupuncturist suggests that they go to a group therapy session tomorrow to learn a little bit more about how chronic pain affects your nervous system and affects your mood and affects your memory and uh, how you build relationships and get along with people at work. And patient A is all about getting some work done, so they're really happy to get more support and guidance. Patient B, our complex PTSD patient, goes in for some acupuncture, and they basically have a freakout on the table. For the first couple of minutes, they're totally physically uncomfortable. They can't relax. They can't lie still. And then they just start crying, and they can't even figure out why. They start shaking a little bit, and then they pass out. The, actual, the acupuncturist comes back in the room, patient B comes out of a trance, doesn't know where they are for a second, eventually gets up off the table, and they have a little chat, and they come to realize that the way that they've been holding on to their anxiety and stress is held in their nervous system at a very deep animal level, which is why when they had the acupuncture, their whole animal body was feeling trapped by being, you know, basically held down by the needles, 
and all the emotion that was being stirred up by that energy blockage or that somatic stasis in their body necessarily had to move. So they had a good cry and then had a good nap. And I see this in my practice every day, so I'm not making that up. And the acupuncturist, of course, recommends that maybe they should come back tomorrow for some group therapy because obviously with PTSD and that much emotional uh, constraint held in their system, the more they get some other tools, meet other people going through the same thing, the more likely they are going to begin to trust connecting to other people and connecting with themselves, which with trauma is a really important step. So patient C, our person who is presently dealing with, you know, heart addiction, comes in and once the acupuncture needles are in and they're comfortable and the nice music is playing and the acupuncturist leaves, they basically just fall asleep. And they don't wake up for about 30 minutes, which is relatively long for an acupuncture treatment. But the acupuncturist knows what they're doing and just waits for the person to come out of it. Now, because this person is an addict and they just had this big reprieve from the inner turmoil in their body, they're kind of in a panicky state as they put their clothes back on and uh, are trying to reconnect themselves to the usual way that they feel. So when they are speaking to the acupuncturist, they complain about how painful it was. They didn't like it very much. They think it's only reasonable that they get an extra couple of doses of painkillers because they feel all, you know, sore and uh, kind of upset inside about the whole experience. Now, that may seem to you that I'm being judgmental in some way of how people with addiction behave, but... As an addict, I can say that that's actually the first thing that any one of us would do is try and control the situation because we lost control of the situation so much we actually took a nap. And that might sound like a silly thing, but until you've experienced heart addiction, that's actually one of the scariest things is feeling better when you don't know why because you can't control that and uh, controlling things has become pretty much your full-time job. So we have our autoimmune patient. They've been through day one and two. They have their diet. They have some perspective. They have had a direct experience of relief, so they know that some things can change the way that they feel. And with autoimmunity, that's a big, big deal. Because if you know from personal experience that putting things into action can make you feel better, you're much more likely to keep doing them. So that's an important thing to be aware of. With patient B, our trauma patient, I would naturally assume that a person like that would be kind of on the fence. Is this the best idea for me? They're asking me to change things. They're asking me to trust them and maybe even trust myself to keep doing these things. When life is a, a constant, almost erratic overreaction to the world or a kind of closed off headlock of uh, a, a control in, in, in the ways that you handle stress, the opportunity for a person with PTSD to feel better you know, the biggest risk, again, is just being able to feel grounded and enough trust of the people around them and themselves to stick with it and to trust that you would call, or what I would call, the, the keel of your boat instead of the sails. And that's a really big transition for most of us. You know, it's one thing to chase around the monkeys and rats in your head. It's another thing to really trust your tailbone and your knees and your heels and your feet, especially bare feet walking around in the grass. Uh, in the sense of being really in the moment and grounded. Our person who is, you know, a bit worse off going through addiction, 
their whole negotiation is still with a kind of profound impatience and control. And they need to do that because they're adapting to something that they can't even put into words. So please don't judge people with addiction. Please recognize that they're basically running around with, you know, two fists full of duct tape doing everything they can to cover up whatever it is that's happening next so they can get through the next minute and find another handful of duct tape. If that's a weird example, I just made that up. (laughs) So it's day three on our cool TV show. I hope you're like being a producer in Hollywood. It seems fun to me. And now they're all going to go into group therapy. So let's say our patients A, B, and C walk into this large room and there's a circle of chairs. There's a bunch of people sitting in the chairs and our old cool frumpy psychologist who on purpose tries not to look too uh, representative of any particular aspect of life or medicine just because it makes them safe. Cool clinical trick, by the way. Try not to look like too much of a serious person and people will actually meet you for you instead of you for what your expectation of you looks like it's supposed to be. You might want to listen to that again. So here we go. Our patients all sit down in the circle and uh, our old psychologist decides to lead them through a guided meditation. And after a few minutes, our valiant and cool heroic patients are going to write down the thoughts, the story, the narrative that just kept intruding on their meditative state. And that's often what I do with patients uh, in my practice if they come to a meditation class. Step one isn't to learn to meditate. Step one is to realize that when you try and actually just calm down and be yourself and let your mind kind of ramble around, it's going to keep rambling about a very specific subject or about various subjects, but all with a very certain kind of emotional theme to them. So I would encourage you, if you're a patient, if you're a clinician, if you're a Jedi, to sit in meditation and just for the sake of authenticity and personal self-awareness, just be aware of the narrative and the theme because there's something underneath of that that makes it so important. After the guided meditation, our patients are going to be guided through a little bit of a, call it a a somatic mindfulness practice or a kind of fluid qigong practice or yoga practice where they're going to be guided through various movements and breath work and uh, expressive gestures and things that are in a way safe but in a way a little bit risky. And after that, they're all given a clipboard with a piece of paper. We call it a somatic map. And uh, it's an outline of a human body. And the job is to basically, with a couple of colored pencils or whatever you have in your hand, physically draw on the map of the body where you felt the most tension, the most pain, the most stiffness, the most butterflies, the most... Uh, I guess I would call it being cut off from your body where there's kind of no connection and places where there's actually no feeling at all, like kind of a black hole. And uh, that's also something I do with people quite often, uh, especially with acupuncture, because if you come into my clinic, and I'm not trying to sell acupuncture treatments, I'm quite busy, uh, but this is just an example. If you're uh, coming to, say, see a body worker or an acupuncturist and you have a drawing in your hand of your body and how it feels to you on the inside, 
perhaps from a physical level of pain, or perhaps from an emotional level of trauma, or from a level of almost um, existential uh, inabilities to connect to yourself. You have this drawing that says all of that about your inner experience, and you give that drawing to, say, an acupuncturist. Now they know that you know that they know that you know that where the needles are going have to do with bringing more attention or circulation or neurotransmitter function or shift inflammation or bring something magical that people call chi to that part of your body to help you heal. Now, it's one thing to lie on the table and have a needle in your stomach because you have gastritis. It's another thing to lie on the table with a needle right between your belly button and your uh, solar plexus or your breastbone, knowing that that's there because of how you've been holding on to visceral uh, emotional anxiety for the last 10 years, perhaps because of trauma. So that somata map is an important bit of information for anyone who's trying to heal their whole body, mind, and emotional, spiritual self. So it's group therapy day. Patients A, B, and C have done a meditation and written down what they can't stop thinking about. They've done a movement practice and they've drawn on a somata map where their body is the most wound up and having the hardest time to relax or they're having the hardest time to actually connect to. Now, our group therapy session is guided through basically a questionnaire and a review of the impact of what are called ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences, which are the slightly lighter version of things that happen to people that turn into PTSD. And it's, there's a bit of a blurry line between uh, ACEs, uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and actual PTSD. Uh, you know, in my, in my experience, from my opinion, one leads to the other and a very severely adverse experience is going to produce trauma or PTSD. Uh, some of them are just going to produce people who are, you might call it once bitten, twice shy, or more likely to uh, polarize the relationships around control. So imagine you're sitting in group therapy with a bunch of strangers who you've just done a, a meditation and a movement class with. And now you're being walked through the, say, top 25 things that happen to people from the moment they're born, more or less to the moment that they become a, an autonomous teenager. And they're guided through what usually happens and usually the consequences of those experiences. So just putting that into your, your uh, imagination for our TV show, the episode's almost over. Uh, but I just want to walk you through what happens to our patients uh, as they're going through that uh, guided relationship with trauma. Let's say uh, patient A, our autoimmune patient, loved the meditation, but they kind of found that their thoughts kept going back to their fear and their war with the autoimmune process going on in their body. When they looked at their somatomap, map, it was pretty clear, you know, they just had some scribbles up and down their spine. It turns out they actually had ankylosing spondylitis and, um, you know, their, their back and their knees were just inflamed and sore. And that's what they put on their somatomap was, that's where my pain is. Patient A, however, also put a little spiral around their throat and some little kind of scribbles around their wrists that looked a little bit kind of like handcuffs or something that would be uh, restraining in some way around their wrists. 
when the conversation about childhood trauma was going on, well, patient A grew up in kind of an impatient and judgmental and hyper-responsible home. There wasn't a lot of violence or addiction or mental illness or abandonment or death in the family or anything like that. They just grew up knowing that they had to get it right. So that's what their experience of the group therapy was. Patient B, our person with complex PTSD, found being in a room, in a circle, surrounded by strangers, kind of distracting, especially during the meditation because they found it hard to relax with all those different people around them. And when they evaluated their stream of thought, they just kept coming back to the consequences of not fixing their PTSD and getting all of this right and taking care of their family and doing uh, everything that they could to control the consequences in their life, the consequences of PTSD, the consequences uh, of, of doing all this therapy, the consequences of you know that argument they had with their spouse two days ago, because that's what their focus was on. When patient B, our trauma patient, looked at their somatomap, it showed a lot of tension and chronic pain in their neck and shoulders. There's a big line across the middle of their abdomen that kind of represented that they felt cut off or separated or split somehow in their diaphragm. And there was a big X on their pelvis in the sense that they weren't really feeling connected to that part of their body at all. When the conversation about childhood trauma was going on, patient B had a bit of a cry because patient B grew up in a very dangerous neighborhood. There was a lot of violence on the streets. There was violence in their house. Let's say there was addiction in their family. Uh, you could even call addiction a family tradition in some of those families. There was a very us versus them mentality in the family, a lot of racism, you know, maybe growing up in that kind of a neighborhood. So it was very imprinted in their family. And our patient B, of course, went off to war to fight and kill strangers that were supposed to be the bad guys because that's the way they were taught to be in the world. During that uh, kind of healing circle conversation, patient B really just wanted to run around in circles and scream and scream and freak out because they really started to own the fact that they were now becoming aware that their childhood had turned them into a very polarized, very aggressive uh, and very defiant person. And that they were, you know, patient B was coming to the awareness they were going to have to find a new way to be in the world if they were going to find a way to live without this constant seething sense of anxiety and distress in their gut. Because that's what PTSD can feel like. So show's almost over. And patient C, our patient with addiction, who's sitting in their very first group therapy session, they found the seated meditation kind of like surfing channels at three o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep. Their attention kept leaping from places to other places, places to be, places they'd rather be, places they could find drugs, people they knew that they could uh, maybe trick out of some money to get some drugs, and their mind was just flitting basically through almost a deck of cards of other places they could be and other things that they could do to control what happens in their life for the rest of the day and for hopefully for tomorrow. Patient C, when they wrote down what they had to, had to say about their narrative, they actually wrote down, my narrative is what fun I can have after all this BS is over. 
ha-ha, because that's often what happens when you're always dissociating, is you're trying to make reasons why nothing matters. They had fun with the movement practice because it was really distracting and they got to be a little bit goofy until they started to feel like they were going to throw up. When they looked at their somata map that they made after the movement practice, patient C actually drew a spiral in their solar plexus and they kept spiraling and spiraling and spiraling until the pen actually started to poke through the paper. They actually made an audible snorting sound when they were drawing on their little clipboard every time they put a big X on their face, their heart, and their groin. No one home here, no one home there, and nobody there. Because sometimes that's what trauma actually, or addiction actually feels like, is you're really disconnected from your body, especially the parts of your body that would bring you the most connection and comfort. During the conversation about traumatic childhoods, patient C had to physically grab the sides of their chair to stop them from shaking any harder or vomiting or fainting. Patient C, when they were reflecting on their childhood, was physically and sexually abused many times. They were mentally abused by members of their family from the point at which they could talk. Their family had had generations of abuse and addiction. Patient C had actually never made any real friends, and to this day had no idea what most people were talking about when it came to things like love, sex, play, adventure, or creating a secure future. The amount of visceral, instinctual, and existential pain that our, you know, addictive patient C experienced on a day-to-day level was finally looking them in the face. And they were facing their pain with empathy for the first time in their entire life. Imagine sitting in group therapy with obvious trauma and presently facing the hell of addiction, feeling a sense of understanding and empathy and connection with all of the feelings that you have and no longer have in your body because of all of the things that happened around you as you tried to actually fit in and function and create connections and relationships around body language, tone of voice, facial expressions, and trust. And that was impossible. And that impossibility made trusting yourself impossible. And when you can't trust yourself, you can sometimes at least trust the chemistry of addiction. So final scene of our cool pilot TV show. I hope you're still having fun with the the whole metaphor here. Um, So final scene and our patients are going to go and have a very quick chat with our cool therapist uh, actor who's hopefully going to make the show really great. So patient A goes up to the psychologist and says, thank you very much. And I finally get the way that I'm solving my problems is the problem. I'm going to keep coming to therapy. I'm going to keep going to acupuncture. I'm going to stay on all of these things that are going to regulate my immune system until I can self-regulate my approach to dealing with the things in my life I need to change. And big smile, big hug, high fives, fist bumps, or whatever makes this seem cool to you. And they leave the set. And hopefully we'll see them again in the show someday when they're better. Patient B, our trauma patient, comes up and says, thank you very much. Do you know of a peaceful place I can go right now and learn to live in my own skin again. 
is there another kind of therapy? Is there another kind of body work? Is there a Qigong class? Is there a yoga specific class for trauma? Is there something I can do to re-inhabit my body? Because until I can do that, I don't think anything else is going to change. Big hug, high five, and patient B, trauma patient, leaves the set. And then very shyly, our patient C, our person suffering from pretty much all of this and addiction, says with tears in their face and a very shaky voice, thank you so much. I would like to go into addiction treatment, please. A program, any program now, please. Okay, so that show probably would never work because it's actually really friendly and fun and no one's, you know, being uh, treated badly or too sarcastically, so modern television probably wouldn't find it very funny. But hopefully the metaphor of a TV show uh, proves my point, because the thing that I really want to share in, in this episode, and as I shift the direction of the podcast, is from a clinical medical point of view, you know, if people were cars and you could pop the hood, what's going on in people with complex autoimmune disease, complex PTSD, and chronic addiction looks a lot alike. And if they look a lot alike and you can do things medically, clinically, from pharmaceutical drugs to nutraceutical supplements to healthy diets uh, to other therapies and modalities to repair that much dysfunction in their metabolism, you're a good doctor. And it doesn't matter if you're treating autoimmunity or trauma or addiction, you're helping everything that you're seeing go wrong under the hood. And that's our job as clinicians. The diagnosis part, interesting, but changing the way things work on the inside, that's actually what we do, especially in functional medicine and in Chinese medicine. When you look at how people experience their embodiment, and this is another part of my point, Chronic pain, if you just have, say, arthritis, is being chronically wounded. And if you're an animal who is chronically wounded, your central nervous system is going to tell your immune system that you're probably going to get bitten or hurt because you're a wounded animal. So you should probably upregulate that inflammation. And it becomes this vicious feedback loop. Is it autoimmunity? Is it PTSD? Does it matter? But the more you can re-inhabit your body on an animal level to feel less pain, less what some people would call the heebie-jeebies or just an unknown floating sense of anxiety and distress, that's going to bring you home to your animal body and your animal self or what you may call your somatic felt sense awareness of yourself, which for many people has as much impact, if not more impact on their blood tests than most drugs do. Let me just say that again. When you go to some kind of therapy that's focused on changing the way you somatically feel your whole self, and I'm going to say animal body to make a point, and you get less wounded and more adaptable and more agile and more comfortable every week or every day, that's going to change the way your central nervous system and your immune system talk to each other. And that's freaking amazing from a clinical outcome point of view, which is why yoga and qigong and tai chi are available on every street corner and why acupuncture is licensed almost everywhere in the world now, because they work and they've worked forever. Because most illness is about how you embody your experience, not just what your symptoms mean uh, in a textbook or on a lab test. 
Anyone who's living with chronic inflammation, chronic pain, a tendency to over-exaggerate the danger of things and the consequence of things is going to be uh, instinctual, visceral, and existential pain. Even if they don't have any real memory of anything really horrible happening in their lives, this unrest, this disquiet, this inability to actually feel your whole self on that instinctual animal level is going to be read by most parts of your deeper nervous system as pain. And anyone in chronic pain is going to seek a painkiller. So I don't really consider addiction a diagnosis. I consider it an adaptive strategy that will inevitably fail. And I'm saying that again from experience. When I meet people with addiction, the first questions we get into, and I've done a podcast on this before, is the three whys of addiction. So if you're experiencing addiction, you know, go through the catalog uh, of episodes for Fusion Health Radio. I think it's in the 30s uh, somewhere, and it's called The Three Whys of Addiction. And it's really just a conversation about the fact that addiction is a strategy. It's not by itself um, isolated from the rest of your life. And it is, in my opinion, a diagnosable condition because there's a lot of other adaptive strategies that turn out to be diagnosable conditions as well. So thanks for uh, helping produce our TV show, although it may never become that popular because uh, it's maybe not that funny or not that full of conflict. It's just full of really, really wise people trying to help other people become really, really whole, happy, and, and uh, complete people from the inside out. Uh, it's still a good metaphor, and I hope you appreciate the metaphor. If you're looking for support in that direction, uh, you can find me on uh, one of two websites. One is called the integrativehealthdetective.com. That's integrativehealthdetective.com. And there you can find most of what I have to do with uh, functional medicine and Chinese medicine and things like that. And there's another website called somaticmindfulness.org. Uh, somaticmindfulness.org and you can find uh, my work on trauma and addiction there. If you're looking for something more tangible to wrap your arms around in the short term, I have a somatic mindfulness breathwork and qigong uh, online training. It's starting in mid-October. You can find that information on the somaticmindfulness.org website. Uh, it's a 12-week uh, course. Uh, it's going to go across the holidays, so we'll be taking a break near the end to give you some time to really integrate what you're learning and then come back in the new year to uh, have kind of a, a big finale of, of what you're learning. I've taught this course a few times, and everyone who's ever taken it, uh, especially people who have experience with things like Qigong, martial arts, and breathwork, uh, have told me that it somehow integrated things in a way and focused on things that were so deeply structured around their nervous system that they really felt a, a change in, in their own personal practice. And many patients have, have also uh, reported that that experience gave them a very different insight about what uh, the pain and the anxiety were really about and what it was like to deal with them in ways that weren't just about numbing. So uh, pardon me for that commercial, but I just wanted you all to know what's happening with uh, what I'm offering for the community out there. Please let me know if you have comments about the shift in the focus of Fusion Health Radio. I'll be doing uh, new music and a new voiceover for the intro and outro as well. Still working on that. 
but I uh, hope you're excited to see what that turns out to be like. So am I. I'm also curious if you have specific questions about specific autoimmune conditions or processes, if you're a patient or a clinician, if you have thoughts or feelings around the experience or the treatment of PTSD uh, and also addiction, because I'm doing this podcast to help people who need any kind of help, and that's patients, clinicians, and caregivers. So thank you very much for listening to the show. Next time we're going to be doing a episode on CBD, uh, cannabidiol, uh, and uh, the what's called the Ancestral Autoimmune Protocol, or my approach to treating autoimmune disease, trauma, and addiction. So again, thanks for listening. Hope you're having a really great fall. And if there's anything I can do to help, just send me an email and you can do that through either of those websites. Again, integrativehealthdetective.com or somaticmindfulness.org. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.